Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, before we get into the text for the morning, I just want to say a couple quick things. First off, uh, we have some of the most amazing women in this community. We do. And uh, I was thinking about it this week, and four particular words came to mind that I think are words that, like, characterize or exemplify who uh, the women are in this community. One is selfless, your just ability to set aside your own agenda, to care for the needs of other people, to love people well is incredible and should be emulated. Uh, you are brave, the amount of confidence in which you venture into new experiences, into uncharted terrain is, uh, is to be applauded. Uh, the way that you do that in the face of uncertainty or in the face of challenge uh, is something to be admired. Uh, you're prophetic. I've noticed that over and over again, that women in this community are wildly prophetic. What I mean by that is um, I believe that movements that happen in the world and often within Christianity are movements that are born from women who, in a unique way, love people really well, care for the marginalized, look out for the victims, the ones that uh, kind of go unnoticed, and they are radically inclusive and bring them close, and women are doing amazing things, not just around the world, but especially in this community. And last, beautiful. I say that because the inner quality and the spirit with which you live and the way that you Live and move and have your being, as the book of Acts says, in this community is incredible. So I just want to acknowledge you are the glue that holds this community and this city together. And uh, we are grateful for you. So for all moms and for all women in this community, let's a real quick round of applause. Second thing I want to say before we get into the text, I uh, have never done this before that I can remember, but I want to take a moment to remember two people that the Universal Church lost in the last two weeks. Um, we don't typically do this, but since the last time we were together, two people that have influenced the church uh, in some incredible ways have been lost. The first uh, is Rachel Held Evans. Many of you know her. She died last week at the age of 37 from sudden illness. Uh, she was a theologian. She loved beautiful words and thoughtful words. She wrote about, um, wrote with like deep authenticity and many people in the church I think were touched by her writing. Uh, she tended to write about areas of justice and created in people a deeper desire to love Jesus and uh, to seek and care for those who are marginalized. And uh, Sarah Bessie, who is another writer, wrote this about her this week. Rachel was for an all-embracing vision of Christ's church and the relentless inclusion of refugees and those suffering poverty of LGBTQ people, of women, and especially women of color, of the unseen and unheard and swept aside. She recognized the real geometry of God. She used her writing to build the bridges so many of us needed to get back to God's love to one another and to the church. And in a world that covets power, cash, and influence, she lavishly gave away all three. 
Another one that was lost this last week, magnificent man, John Vanier, is a philosopher and Catholic humanitarian who founded L'Arche. He was profoundly humble. He was propelled by contemplation. He was a spiritual giant, and uh, many would say a living saint. Every Sunday, friends of mine and friends of ours gather with us from a large community. You have been touched by this man simply because this group of people is with us. And he was the one that started that years and years ago, and his life has flowed around the world. And so again, we lost a great one in Jean Vanier. He said this just about a month ago. He was 90 years old, and he said this, somewhere the deepest desire for us all is to be appreciated, to be loved, to be seen as somebody of value, but not just seen when you love people you want to be together. And so this morning, we just really quickly remember Rachel Held Evans and Jean Vanier. With that, I'm going to transition to where we are going this morning. Uh, Kevin described what's going to happen over the next couple months, and uh, I thought instead of jumping straight into a particular story, it might benefit us to start with a little bit of a talk on biblical interpretation again. You know that over the last year, I've tried to highlight that in different ways. And uh, so this morning, I'm going to try to continue that theme a little bit and at the same time look at one particular story that might uh, help us. Um, Bible interpretation, here's my theory, is a bit like rock climbing. Any of you rock climb? Okay. So three of you will get this illustration. Shoot. There goes my next couple minutes. Um, So rock climbing is a unique sport because you're competing against the wall if it's indoor. You're competing against the rock if it's outdoor. But you're also competing a little bit against yourself, right? That uh, you're challenging yourself. On any rock or any wall, there's a goal. And the goal is typically to get to the top, right? To get from point A to point B. And uh, each wall generally has different routes you can take to get there. But all of the routes generally lead to the top, the place you want to go. But uh, when Alex Honnold, many of you heard the story of him climbing uh, the Don Wall. There's Tommy Caldwell, other guys have climbed uh, there for years. Uh, When he climbed, did it free solo, He went all the way to the top and got to the top, and what was unique was that as he started the journey back down, where you can like walk around and come all the way to the bottom, there were people who were walking on their way up, and they went, oh, you must have got started early this morning, with no idea that he, because he had no ropes or gear with him, that he had just climbed the whole thing. Um, They were at the top as well. They just got there by a bit different route. And what's interesting about climbing is uh, there are different routes with different degrees of difficulty. Uh, You can climb to the top. You can reach your goal. You can stand there at the the very top and look down, or you can ring a bell or whatever uh, you do, but each person can reach the top. And they get the same result, but it's the journey getting there that can be more challenging. Typically with an indoor climbing gym, there's different routes by color, and each of them has different degrees of challenge. And the more uh, 
you approach the difficult ones, the more skill is needed, the more technique, the more strength, the more ability, the more um, uh, wisdom from years of climbing in order to get to where you need to get. The same is true, in my opinion, of Bible reading or Bible interpretation. You can read the Bible at numerous levels. All of them are leading us to the same exact place, but each of them comes with different degrees of difficulty, with more challenge, with more uh, complication. So we also do this with theology, I think. So systematic theology, those of you that think about systematic theology, that's a bit like rock climbing with big, fat, heavy handholds, right? But then you have like biblical theology, which is more intricate, detailed, finger grips and uh, things that make it a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more challenging. And biblical interpretation is similar. So if you take, for example, Evie, my nine-year-old, Evie can read the story of Noah and understand the basics, right? She can understand that uh, there's an ark, there's some animals, uh, that there's God's protection, that there's God's love, uh, and it's beautiful. She can reach the top of the story. She can get there. And at the end of the day, she went through the passage, she gained a deeper understanding, she learned something about God, and she walks away understanding and knowing God more, and that is beautiful. She arrived. She got where she needed to go. She doesn't need to know Hebrew. She doesn't need to know ancient cultural historical background to get what she needs to get from the text. That's the beautiful thing about it, right? But all of you, as rock climbers of the scriptures, know that the story of Noah is a bit more complicated than that. There's a bit more going on, a bit more nuance, a bit more complexity. But there's still many beautiful ascents, many different routes you can take to get where you want to go in studying Noah. Now, before I leave the analogy, let me point out one other thing about this analogy that I think is more challenging within the church than it is than rock climbing. Let's just imagine for a second my daughter walked down the street to Wild Walls. She's strapped up, put on the gear, put on the shoes, started climbing, um, and just made her way to the top. Everyone around would be like, man, that's amazing. Way to go. Great job. Evie, keep it up. Awesome work, right? And when she turned 15 and would try more challenging routes, they would say the same thing. Like, way to go. Look at the growth you've had. Look at the challenge you're putting yourself to. Way to like, express yourself on the wall. All that stuff would happen, right, as she continued to climb. If she kept climbing at Wild Walls until she was in her 40s, people would marvel at her refined technique, her ability to control herself on the wall, um, the wisdom that she's gained from years of climbing, and they would go, man, that is incredible. You started at nine, and now look at all these years later. Look at how much more of a climber you are. Look at how deep you can go into climbing. And then if she was in her 70s and still climbing that same wall, people would applaud her as loud today as they did when she was nine. And they would look at it and marvel that somebody still is wanting to climb, right? Now, if we were to apply that to the church, it, that's where things get a little bit different with the analogy. Sometimes it goes more like this. My daughter reads it at nine, and people celebrate her growth and learning. She reads it at 12, and she's starting to understand it at a deeper level with more curiosity. And we go, wow, that's amazing. Keep it up. Keep climbing. That's incredible. She gets to 15 and she starts questioning some of the handholds. 
asking if there's a different route to take to the top. And we encourage the curiosity at first. And yet at the same time we say, but it's probably best that you just stick to the already prescribed routes. Just stay right where you are, stay in your lane, right? When she's 30 and she's understanding climbing or reading more than she ever has before, and she's understanding herself more than she ever has before and how she relates to God and God to the scriptures. And then when she does it in community with other people, we applaud it and we think it's amazing. And then she climbs a route not taken by many people or she wears a different pair of shoes or she finds a new chalk to use that lets her have a little bit more grip. And suddenly we're like, you suck. Don't do it that way. What are you doing? People at other gyms start getting angry at her. Like, what are you go? Why are you doing this? You shouldn't. Man, you should never come to my gym. We don't let you do that here, right? And you have all these like weird things going on with climbing. Now, could you imagine for a moment that we were to walk down wild walls and she's nine and she starts climbing and she's only using the big handholds. And a bunch of 40-year-old people are standing around mocking her, going, what are you doing, you little wimp? You can't climb with the little intricate holds? What are you thinking, right? We would be like, that is insane. Why are we doing that? And it might be part of the reason why we have a lot less climbers in the church today, a lot less people willing to keep exploring and reading and wondering and questioning, right? Because we're... We're unique about it within the church. And I think at Newcom, we want to refuse to be a community that speaks down to anyone engaging the scriptures. We want to be a community that encourages the climb, the process of learning, the study, the experience, the engagement of scripture. And in doing so, know that each of us walk away understanding and knowing and loving the giver of life right? That's the beauty. There's no wrong questions in pursuit of Jesus. And this morning, what I want to do is give you a big fat handhold, right? A big one that we've used for many years. And then what I want to do is say, just like any climber, that's a great handhold to have. And yet, we want to layer it with some pretty precise footwork and some unique little handholds that will uh, challenge us a bit. So if you would, Just imagine for a moment yourself strapped in, holding a rope, looking up at the top, and at the very top is the story of the flood and Noah, and we're going to do a little bit of climbing, okay? That's the idea. Here's the big fat handhold that we use in biblical interpretation, all right? It goes something like this. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it, okay? If you went to Bible college, that's something they ask you to memorize. When literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it. Okay? It means don't overthink it. It means it's just literal. Just read it, and you're going to understand it. Don't freak out. It's going to be fine. Right? It's called the golden rule of interpretation. It goes a little bit like this. This is written by David Cooper, 1942. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, study in the light of related passages, and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly 
otherwise. David Cooper, 1942. Now, this is a big fat handhold in the climbing world of biblical interpretation. And this can be applied throughout the scriptures and can bring incredible insight. It absolutely does all of the time, without a doubt. But this morning, like I said, we want to explore a few different routes and talk about some ways that can be a little bit more intricate and worth exploring. All right? So let me give you a few. Number one, Eastern writers were very expressive and used various forms of expression to stress their point. Okay? Eastern people loved to express themselves. They used colorful and powerful language, and they did that in all sorts of ways. One of the big ways is what is called hyperbole. Many of you are familiar with it. It means above or beyond and casting or throwing. It's two parts of the same word. So basically it means to cast beyond or to exaggerate. We use it all of the time. We use it throughout life all of the time. And the biblical writers used it quite a bit too. So they used exaggeration for effect, to make a point, to get you to see something pretty profound. All right? So let me give you an example or two. Jesus said this, You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Do we literally believe that they were swallowing camels? The answer is no. We know that's not the case because Jesus is exaggerating. He's stating something and casting it beyond. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Again, hopefully none of you have taken that literally. Um, instead, it should signify to each of us that sin is something we should not tolerate in our lives, and I fundamentally believe that, and we should do whatever it is to root it out of our lives. That is an absolute truth, right? But Jesus expresses it in a very exaggerated way to get you to notice it, to get you to pay attention. He also says this, if any man come to me and hate not his father and Mother's Day and mother, right? Okay, now the point is of this, right? That seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added. Make God priority number one, right? He's not telling you to literally hate your mom, especially today, right? So now this is not just Jesus and this is not just the Gospels. Paul also utilizes this technique. He says this, this is the Gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now he is not technically, literally saying that every single living thing on the face of the earth has heard the gospel. That's not what he was saying. What he's saying is that within the Jewish and Gentile community, a lot of the gospel was going around to a lot of people, right? But he's saying it as if everybody, everyone had heard, right? You get the point. In the Old Testament, this happens quite a bit too. When King David sorrowfully stated, I am weary with my groaning, all night I make my bed swim, he did not literally mean that his whole room was filled with so many tears that his bed was swimming, right? Similar, the king, Solomon, made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Again, 
The point would be Solomon was quite a rich fellow and his kingdom was luxurious. It's doubtful that what the author was intending to say is that all the little sand pebbles you pick up, that that's the same amount of jewels that he was tossing around or that he was uh, lining his garden with diamonds. That would have been pretty legit, but um, probably not literal, right? Now, so how do you recognize if it's hyperbole? How to recognize biblical exaggeration. What I want to do is give you just a couple little guides. And if the statement falls into two or three of these categories, then it's probably hyperbole. Okay, number one. Is it literally impossible? If the answer is yes, then it might be hyperbole. It's not necessarily, but it might be. Does it mere hyperbole or hyperbole elsewhere in the scriptures? If the answer is yes then it's probably hyperbole, or it's quoted hyperbole. So the Apostle Paul does that quite a bit. He quotes hyperbole, making a big, bold, broad statement to make his point. Number three, does it conflict with teaching elsewhere in the Bible? If so, then it's probably hyperbole or sarcastic hyperbole, which is also used in the Scriptures. Does it conflict... Or does it employ universal language, all, everyone, no one, the whole world? If the answer is yes, then it might be hyperbole, especially if you can answer yes to one of the above questions. And last but not least, is it poetry, prophecy, or proverb? If the answer to that is yes, then it's a good chance that it might not be literal, but instead hyperbole especially if you can answer yes to another one of the questions. Does that make sense? I know I went through that fast. But here would be an example. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Right? All language, inclusive, big, right? Um, Obviously, it's hyperbole, right? He's talking about the conditions before the flood. And much of the narrative in this section is described with hyperbole. We know that not every single thought at every moment was evil all the time by every single person. And we have to know that because we have Noah, right? So we know that it's impossible that it was always that. That's the idea of hyperbole. It's using universal big language to make a significant point. Was it incredibly evil? Yes. Was it like, did it feel like everybody? Totally. John Walton and Temper Longman III make this statement. The rhetoric related to the flood is intentionally universal, but it is actually the impact and significance that is universal rather than the range and scope. Second idea. Number two, Eastern writers are not likely trying to get you to know the material like facts in history class, but more like a life-transforming story, okay? Um, A day or two ago, I asked my son about his history exam. How'd it go? Was it okay? Everything go all right? And uh, the answer was, okay, you know, which is what you'd expect from a teen. Okay, great, that's it. Uh, So I asked, what did you learn? And the response was something along the lines of, do you mean what were the answers? 1492, 1611, 1812, do you need me to keep going? I was like, no, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, what did you learn? Now, 
Obviously, he could tell me that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, right? We know that, okay? He knows that. But the question is, why does that story matter? Why does the date matter, right? The questions that should be asked when we come to the story of 1492 and Columbus sailing the ocean blue is, where did he sail from? Why did he set out in the first place? What nation did he leave from? How could they afford it? Why did he go? Why was that nation the most powerful at the time? Why did he claim to find America if there were people already here? If there were people already here, how'd they get here? What is discovery all about and why do we continue to learn as a culture and why is there invention and progress and what does this tell us about people and history, you see? It's not about the fact, it's not about the date, it's about the story, it's about the experience, it's about the learning. The Bible is much the same. There are things going on in the stories that are much deeper than the facts. Far more going on. The writer, in fact, often cares, the Eastern writer cares little about the exact details and more about the meaning behind the story, the arrangement of the details. McLaren says this, storytelling in the ancient world was driven less by a duty to convey true details accurately and more by a desire to proclaim true meaning powerfully. Which takes us to our third idea. Eastern writers were primarily trying to answer questions posed when they wrote, not questions that we're asking today, right? So they're trying to write to people at a specific time and a place and trying to answer questions they're asking, not questions maybe you or I or others are asking. So, for example, they're asking things like, how come we're in captivity? What went wrong? Why are we in the exile? Will God ever rescue us from the exile? Are there any assurances or promises or covenants that we can trust? How did we get our enemies? These are the kinds of questions that the author is writing about and that they are curious to know. He's not writing about the questions that we often ask when we come to the flood. How did they fit two of every type of animal onto the ark? Probably not a question they were asking. Does that mean every breed of dog or just two dogs? Okay, again, maybe not what they were asking. Uh, two of every animal, but seven of some animals. What? Why that? Why some two? Why some seven? Uh, how did Noah have enough food for himself, for the animals? Noah was on the boat for 370 days, right? If so, what'd they do with the elephant poop, right? Did the animals not poop for a year? And very important life-altering questions, right? Did the earth look like this before and then like this after? Inquiring minds want to know. Probably no one back then wanted to know because they had no idea, but... Maybe today we wonder, if so, and the whole earth was covered with water, how come Noah landed basically where he started? Float up, float back down. Did that disappoint him? <laughs> I'm curious. Was he like, oh, crap, I could have discovered America. 
Maybe. Right? Um, how did kangaroos hop to Australia? How did snakes slither to the Amazon? Again, probably not questions they were asking, even if it's questions that we have asked or that our kids have asked us. So many questions that the author's not trying to address, and instead he's addressing a whole different set of them. For example, the ones I mentioned a moment ago. How come we're in captivity? What went wrong? The answer to that would be, because we're idiots, and we keep doing things that rebel against God, and you notice it. And I'm going to exaggerate, but it's pretty obvious that all things are happening that are really bad all the time, and no one has any good thoughts. Sound familiar? That's what they're describing. Will God ever rescue us from the exile? Are there any promises or assurances? And the answer to that is yes. A rainbow, a promise, a covenant with Noah. God remembered Noah, and then he rescued him, right? How did we get our enemies? Great question, which leads us to our next tip on reading the Bible. Number four, Eastern writers usually have a lot more going on in this story than what we read in a literal sense, okay? Big handholds. They have some crazy, intricate finger holds going on. So, you might be asking, or they might be asking the question, why and how did we get our enemies? Okay? So what I want to do is give you a, a quick little overview of two stories that are very similar that define the two greatest enemies of the people of Israel. Ready? Story number one. It was a flood story. It had one hero. Who was the hero? Noah right? All the people were wicked. How many people? All the people. Everyone was killed. How many? Everyone except for one family that survives, correct? That hero, then what happens? First thing he does after he gets off the ark is he gets drunk, remember? Child of the hero does something sexually inappropriate with his dad, right? Everyone reading this story goes, oh no, crap, that's bad. It results in a curse. The curse that happens is enemy number one, the Canaanites. That's a story. We know the result and how it happened. There's another story you might have heard of, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Another story. There's one hero. His name is Lot. Everyone's wicked. How many people? All the people. Everyone's killed. How many people? All the people, except for one family. There's one hero that survives. What's he do immediately after the story? He gets drunk. What does he do? His daughters of the hero do something sexually inappropriate with their dad. Everyone read, reading it goes, oh no, crap. Same story. Results in a baby and a curse. Enemy number two. Two greatest enemies of the Israelite people who are asking the question, why do we have enemies? And they hear these two stories. Now, the stories may have gone exactly like that. Maybe there was a crazy worldwide flood. Maybe there was a city destroyed with fire from above. And maybe the pattern of the writing is just accidental. Or it could also be that the writer is using story and history and a pattern and intricate details to craft a story to give learning and curiosity and understanding to a people that are wrestling with identity and wondering how they got in the situation that they find themselves in, right? There's usually a lot more going on in the story than just the thing you're reading that are big handholds. There's a lot of other things. Final point. Eastern writers often use poetry and detailed parallelism to write what we read as a story, but which is in fact Hebrew poetry. Okay? 
Many of you, I know, are familiar with this because many of you study the scriptures this way. The story of Noah is told in a chiastic parallelism. It's a figure of speech, it's poetry, in which the order of the terms in the two parallel clauses are reversed in the second. So the pattern goes A, B, B, A, okay? The whole way through the text. So what you do is you find the section within the Hebrew text that shows you the beginning of the poetry and the end of the poetry. And then it looks like this if you were to write it out. That is the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. Everything parallels with something later. So you start with something, you end with it. Next, 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 next. All the way to the most important part. The most important part of parallelism in Hebrew poetry is always the center. The center is the most important detail. It's the most important or significant idea. It's the thing that the author wants you to get. And if there's anything that the author wants you to get when it comes to the story of the flood, it is this idea at the very center that God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. So all the chaos, all the confusion, all the story, all the days, all the days being equal, 40, 40, 130, 130, like everything that's happening all comes down to the biggest idea, which is God remembers Noah, right? So I'll bring it full circle. Guess what I teach Evie about Noah and the flood? God remembers Noah. That's the big takeaway. And guess what? It's the same thing I learned. You can layer it. You can take all kinds of crazy different routes. There's a lot of stuff going on in the story. But it all comes down to the same thing. God remembered Noah. And the goal of this morning is to keep in mind that when we read and as we move forward, there's a lot of rock climbing to do. There's a lot of intricacy. Don't just take the big handholds. Go for the tiny stuff. Take a different route. Explore a little bit. Get curious. Put some shock on. Talk to a friend. Have someone belay you. All of that stuff should happen. Let's stand. We'll close with this benediction. New community, as you leave today, Commit to venture into the scriptures this week. Try a new handhold. Explore a new route. Read a section you don't know and ask a ton of questions. The Holy Spirit is your guide and he will belay you. May the Lord meet you. May the Spirit inspire you. May you fall more in love with Jesus and may you delight always in the beauty and the wonder of the word. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. Happy Mother's Day.